0: This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinkelement.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack drinkelement.com slash justinclimo.
1: The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar. Our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European Wine Drinkers California Wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa Noma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful. The wines are great. And you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at wines. 4Change.com, discount code CONTACTS at checkout.
0: Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Klemmel. Welcome back to Context. We are joined today by Keith Larson, head basketball coach at Menlo School. Coach, really excited to have you here. It's been a long time since we've had a chance to catch up.
2: No, it's fun to be here. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Let's jump right in then. Why don't you take us through your background as a coach? How did you get into this? How did you get your first job? What has the process been like in moving on to other jobs? And how can you share your background and set the table here?
2: Well, I don't come from a sports background. My dad wasn't a coach, but he was a backup catcher for the old San Francisco Seals. So I did have a guy that enjoyed sports. I'm the oldest of a very large Irish Italian family. So basically my job was to take your brothers and sisters out until dinnertime. So that started that teaching, that keeping things busy, looking around and see what type of toys or implements you had just to keep your brothers and sisters busy until dinner time, And then I'm also the oldest cousin. So I literally have about 70 or 80 cousins that when we go on picnic, I had the same responsibility, go over to the field, go over to the playground, keep all your cousins busy while we can have a glass of wine or play some cards. So that kind of started building to exactly what I was and, and what I was about to become. I have a lot of friends that are five or six years older that are attorneys. I had seven attorneys in my wedding. I started with the direction that maybe that's where I'll go. I spent a summer in a law library when I was uh, 19 years old, looking up torts. And I realized that one thing I know I'm not going to do is become an attorney. So I changed my major from pre-law, which is administration of justice and history. And then I became a history, physical education major. My first job was as the assistant coach of the fourth grade team at St. Roberts with now CCS commissioner, Steve Filios. And Steve and I went to Sarah together. And so that was cool. And then I was a decent high school basketball player. We had four division one players in my little league, Rod Williams, Nick George. it was fun to play in this league. And then I went and played for a guy named Lyle Newcomer at Skyline college. And this guy was from LA. He was just unbelievable at the things that he had done. And Nick Papageorge and I were both his guards and we were different types of of point guards. And then our rival was Menlo College with Bud Presley. Mm -hmm. And for the first time I saw how two teams that are completely different. Newcomer was a zone guy. We ran lots of sets. Bud Presley was a man guy, I run Hully Gully, and I run Julius Kahn with great patience. Mm-hmm. And sitting on the bench or being on the court, I realized that there are different ways of getting to a really high level. After you know college, I went to San Francisco State, got my credential, the whole nine yards. I student taught with a guy named Pete Haramis, who has 40 years been a high school coach in the area. He got me started. I was a sixth grade coach at Parkside Junior High School. Then went to uh, Mills High School and became the the frosh soft coach. And I was there until the mid 80s when this guy came into my um, gym and he said, hey, my my name is Bob Williams and I'm the new head coach at Menlo College. And Menlo College is going from a JC to a division Mm three. And I'm looking for a young guy that knows the area that can help me. And I'd been at at Mills for probably six, seven years. And a great story is my first year at Mills, it's it's 1979. I think I'm 19 or 20 years old. I'm 22 and 0 going into our final game and lose at the buzzer. So my first job is 22 and 1. (laughs) So I think "I, I got all the answers. And so I went to Menlo college with Bob Williams. And he was telling me, you're the recruiting guy. And I'm pretty much the same age as some of these guys at Menlo. They're like 23, 24. They've been to a bunch of different schools. But I still wanted to coach volleyball. I still wanted to be the golf coach. As an assistant in college, your job is before and after the season. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the year, Bob put his arm around me and said, I think you're probably going to be One of my closest friends, because we had so much fun off the court, but you might want to go back to high school. Woodside High School, right up the street, had a job. And so I applied for that. And I knew that there were really good uh, guys, good coaches with a lot more experience that were uh, looking uh, at the job. And as I was leaving the interview, this guy, Jim Luttrell, who is the AD, said, oh, if you know anybody that could coach my volleyball team, I'm looking for a volleyball coach. I raised my hand. I said, I'm your guy. That was the head volleyball coach at Terranova and and, and at Mills High School. I get the job and had nothing to do with basketball. And and I really want, and I know you know this, and I want everybody that's listening to know this, that 95% of all hires in basketball are done by non-basketball people. They're ADs or presidents or committee. So unless you bring something else to the table, whether you're a great fundraiser, whether you can teach, whether you can maybe help out with another sport, it really enhances your opportunity to get the job. So Mm -hmm. I learned that lesson at Woodside. So while I'm at Woodside, there's a new change at Stanford. Dr. Tom Davis went to Iowa Mm -hmm. and they hired this guy from Montana that nobody knew what a mistake this is. Some guy from Montana is going to coach. No, no experience. So I go down there and I had worked the camps, the, the Biso camps and, and Davis camps called Cardinal, which was up in the Santa Cruz mountains. And basically my job was to, to go for a, a beer runs for all the head coaches there. Mm-hmm. So I, I went there and I said, I know how to run a camp here. And, and he goes, okay, I'll hire you. So Doug Oliver and I were really the camp guys. So I did that for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And then he he called me one day and said, Hey, I need to talk to you. I, I go and visit with Mike Montgomery. And he said, we just lost our assistant coach. His name is Steve Seandell. Mm-hmm. And he went back to Santa Clara mm-hmm. and there's a new rule called restricted earnings. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching at Woodside making about 27,500 a year. And I thought that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And he said that this restricted earnings, you only can make $12,000, but I can give you $4,000 in camp. So, of course, I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, again, I interviewed with three other guys that had a lot more experience that were Division One assistant coaches. Somehow, I got the job. Again, not for my basketball prowess, but I could really run a camp. I actually enjoyed camps. I had fun with the kids and, and just enjoyed everything about it. So my time at Stanford was just incredible. It was the first time I was an assistant coach and I I learned how to become a good assistant. And the, the interesting thing is Mike Montgomery has only hired older guys as assistants. He's tough on assistants. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say the other day that you say 99 things that are shut down and the hundredth one is the one that he will listen to. Mm-hmm. 100% Coach Montgomery. I learned so much from him because we were so opposite. The first day I ever stepped on the court, we had this practice plan on yellow notepad that were six pages long, three and a half hour practice. He gave me one section. Yeah. Uh, a shooting section coming off screens. So he looks down there and he says, Coach Larson, are we done with the filibuster? Can we get a little uh, a practice in so they get some shots up? And, I, and he said in front of everybody. So the next day, I looked down, I got shooting again. All right. So now I know for sure I'm going to get this drill going. I get him, tell him what to do, throw the ball. And he goes, Hey, Larson, this isn't Woodside High School where we just roll the ball out. We need to do some teaching. So that was my five years, and I loved every minute of it, every minute of it. My greatest Montgomery story is I don't have a lot to do. I got Trent Johnson. I got Doug Oliver. These guys are really good. So uh, something came across my desk, and it said, there'll be no taunting. There's too much taunting going on, too much talking on the floor. I figure, well, this is big news, right? So I say to the coaches, hey, tell our guys not to taunt. And I'm like, and he looks around at our guys. This is before Brevin Knight. So we don't have one guy that speaks over a whisper. So we're at Arizona State and Lorenzo, no, maybe USC or anyway, Lorenzo Orr jumps over our guy, dunks it. And he said to our guy who's laying down, get the frick out of here. I jump up, taunting. George Raveling is the coach of USC and he's doing jumping jacks on the side. Montgomery looks down at me and says I thought he said what did he says and I looked at him I said get the frick out of here and this walk on pulls my uh sleeve and says coach did you hear what coach Montgomery said I said yeah asked what he said he goes no he asked what defense they're in <laughs> so my first year not only, I tell the coach to get the you know what out of here Luckily we won and he made a joke out of it at the in our celebration. I, I loved every minute of it. Then my wife and I adopted uh, a daughter from Guatemala and then our second daughter was born a month later. So I had no children, then two children under two. And I went to Menlo college. They had a great relationship with John Ariaga and coach Montgomery and, and a lot of the coaches at Menlo college. So I also became the athletic director there. I stayed there until 2002, had great success, loved that little school, started a sports management undergrad program there. So I was doing some teaching. Then I decided to see if I could get up that ladder. And what I'd like to tell you, and I love Stanislaw, but Stanislaw was the first job I ever took that I couldn't see myself. This is my last job. Stanislaw was, I thought, a stepping stone to being a division one head coach. I had five great years there. I thought we did well with what we had. It is not an easy recruiting place to Mm -hmm. get a kid to go to Turlock, Mm -hmm. but we were in a great conference. Davis was still in it and Mm -hmm. San Bernardino and Bakersfield. It was awesome. The travel was really tough. And then after my five or six years there, I was still teaching in the kinesiology department. I went over to Pittman High School where my daughters were, my oldest daughter, and I coached the girls for two years. And that was such a nice experience. And mm-hmm. I was also had a volleyball club. Mm-hmm. And from there, one of my former players at Stanford, Chris Weems, had taken over the AD job at Menlo. Mm-hmm. And he called me in and said, hey, I need someone to help get this program going. Now, you got to remember, I live in Turlock. So that's a two-hour ride. I had a list of young coaches, including Mike Montgomery's son, Johnny Montgomery, who I thought would do a great job. And he said, what about you? And they slid this little piece of paper towards me and said, what about you for a year? And I looked at it and I said, this is just to coach high school basketball. There's no teaching involved. I said, yeah, I'll do it for a year. So I got to stay with my dad and I went back and forth from here to Turlock. And now I'm ready to start my seventh year at Menlo and couldn't be happier.
0: That's awesome. It's, It's really cool to hear all the different ways in which doors opened and connectivity and the small but large network that is the basketball community in in California. I'm in the middle of your delivery of the Coach Williams story, and all that could go into my mind was when he put his arm around you, did he say, listen, Junior, as he does to the rest of us when we're getting that coaching advice that he gives, but we'll save that for another time.
2: One of the biggest problems I had was I recruited a kid from the desert out in between California and Las Vegas. And I went down there and I watched this kid and we brought him to school and he came to school and it was the wrong kid. (laughs) I, I go, that's not the kid I looked at. He goes, that's the kid we wanted you to recruit. So this kid came all the way to Menlo, actually spent five years, got his degree and it was the wrong kid. So that's awesome. He loves telling that story. So that's when he thought I needed a little more seasoning. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Listen, Junior. Okay, Coach, what are the things that you still needed to figure out when you took over as a head coach? And I know you've had a bunch of different stops, so maybe you could pick and choose some of the most, I don't want to say important, because they're all important, but the lessons you think are most translatable. When you took over a spot, what did you realize – Holy cow, I have no idea what I'm doing.
2: The one thing I've always had is, and I'm probably at the lowest level of uh, smartness when it comes to basketball, but no one has a better time coaching than I do. I love this. I enjoy it. So I think when I was younger and I was playing a lot and open gyms, Doc Schepler and I were young coaches, and he would open Burlingame up. I would open up Mills, and we just play with our guys. Plus, We were playing four or five nights a week in the pro-am leagues. And I went Mm -hmm. over to Eddie Joe Chavez in Marin, and then I'd go to Mark McNamara and DeAnza had open gym, So we were playing all the time. Mm -hmm. So I had to understand that there's more coaching than playing involved. You can't Mm -hmm. just play with your kids all the time. Mm -hmm. And then it got to a point where I I became this kind of hard-nosed guy Mm -hmm. where my mentors were really tough on their players and tough on officials. Mm -hmm. So as I got older, I I realized that not going to work all the time. You're just screaming at your guide. You're screaming at officials all the time. So it gets to a point where if you ask all my teams in my 41 years, what is Larson style? The one thing is I don't have a style. I really adapt to the players that I have. And that's because I've had so many mentors. Montgomery, we had so much offense. And then with uh, Vance Wahlberg, who's just down the street in Fresno when I was at Stanislaw, we would scrimmage all the time and just dribble drive stuff. That has been something that has always been the same, is that I adapt to my players because I'm pretty versed on a, a lot of different styles. But as I got older, I realized it wasn't all about me demonstrating or me getting on players or me getting on officials that I just had to relax and let my players take more responsibility.
0: Yeah. That's a really important lesson. And one that often takes maturity and figuring out a way to have some semblance of success so that we feel more comfortable or secure in letting more leash out. And it's something that I think if you can figure that out earlier, the success that you're chasing also comes a lot quicker. What do you think throughout your career and where you are now, I think you said nine years into Menlo, what do you think is the best thing you do in your program that either is new, and it's something that you've developed over the last few years, or it's something that's stayed with you throughout that's a linchpin in creating the largest ripple effect culturally in your program?
2: Right. And and I know who I am. That's the one thing that is really important in my coaching career is I know what I don't know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid to ask for it. I wasn't a great student, but I have three degrees. I think it's really important when I was at Stanford and now at Menlo, Is when I was at Stanislaw, I had my undergraduate degree, my master's degree. The first thing they saw, because they looked at me and said, he can get those degrees. I sure can. A lot of times you get, you know, where we're at, uh, the institutions we're at. These guys are brilliant. And it's hard to say, could I be like Than Healy? And the guy is just so smart. But when they look at me and say, you got a master's? I can do that if you can do it. So that's really important is to get to their level. The other thing is if you're a tough coach, if you're going to get on your guys, you must have a relationship with them off the court. Mm -hmm. It's imperative. Mm -hmm. And I coach so differently. I have two daughters that were great athletes has nothing to do with boys and girls, the way I coach, but they're a different animal. The Mm -hmm. way I coach the girls, you can coach them as hard as you want, as long as they know you care. They have to feel comfortable around you. And then you can get on them just as much as the boys. Mm -hmm. With the boys, it has to be structure. If you say something, you got to back it up. Mm -hmm. So what I like to do with both, if I'm coaching boys or I'm coaching girls, is when you have these individual meetings and say, so how are you doing? They're always going to give you the same answer. And I picked this up from Willis Wilson, who was a longtime assistant at Stanford. And he was at Rice. And he has this thing called the four H's. And with every person I ever coach, we sit down individually and go over the four H's. And the four H's can be done in one city or it can be done once a week. And the four H's are who's your hero? What are your hopes? Talk about your highlights. Tell me your history. And what are your heartaches? And if you... Open up to kids about that. And and I always start. I always go through whatever I'm all five of those H's when I was their age. And it's one of those things that can be transcended through generations, through ages, through Mm -hmm. different teams you coach. And so that has always been something that has been a part. And, And I write them down and I keep track. And sometimes they'll even change from their freshman year to their senior year. And the other thing is where I've heard lots of your coaches talk about is I have vets and puppies. So when a vet comes in and I'm sitting here right now with a yellow lab on my lap and a chocolate lab right underneath me, and one's the mom and one's the baby. And I've watched through our seven or eight different types of dogs we've had is I watched that older dog teach the puppy how to do things. So I think they were talking about iron, iron versus iron, because iron um, makes iron stronger. And I think coach Katz had another thing that he does, but that's really important where it gives some of the like you could have a junior, the last guy on your bench, Mm -hmm. but he has a freshman puppy Mm -hmm. that he's in charge of. Mm -hmm. And it instills some leadership to them. So I've done that through Stanford, through Menlo College, through Stanislaw. And I learned that from a a soccer coach where she did that with her team. So little things like that that I've done throughout my career. But those are easy and they seem to work wherever I'm at.
0: Uh, Well, I appreciate that because those are very tangible things that people can adopt or modify or figure out conceptually how to incorporate something very similar. I'm curious because you're a little unique in this, especially as you described your Woodside story that, Hey, I want to coach volleyball. I used to coach golf. And I'm normally asking, Hey, what have you learned watching other coaches, specifically other sports that you've been able to translate into basketball? And you're going to have some unique perspective on this as you do coach multiple sports, but what would you offer others As specific things, you've been able to translate from a different sport to your work as a basketball coach and the importance of widening your vision.
2: Right. Well, I I think training. So in my opinion, coaches at any level, at any sport are in charge of two things. Are you in shape and are you prepared? And I do a lot of running analogies. My wife and I owned a, a technical running store for 25 years called Runner's Feet. I was a runner in college. I also owned a couple of racehorses. When I was at Stanford, I met a guy that was in charge of Hollywood Park, Bay Meadows, and Golden Gate Fields. So I do a lot of horse analogies like- Hold on, by the way, good. just
0: yeah. Anytime you hear that, I met a guy and I ended up owning a horse, Yeah, <laughs> great story.
2: It's unbelievable. Yeah. I only owned, he goes, I, I, I he, and it was for free. He says, you go one eighth of a horse. And I wanted to know, is it the head? Is it the back end? <laughs> what, what part of the horse do I own? Yeah. So, I went to the racetrack and it was unbelievable. The people watching, you had guys that had $2 in their uh, pocket and $2,000 and all betting on the same horse, the enthusiasm. So I really liked analogies like, well, you got out of the gate, but we were a cheap horse and couldn't find the finish line where you had a 10 point lead and lost at the buzzer. Yeah. Um, and then running, it was, I, I use the analogy about, You pick your races. You can't run the best race in February and then want to win a state championship in the two mile in June. You have to build. And as coaches, we're constantly telling our players in order to get better, you must fail, you must fail. And when I talk to you, I'm always going to say, what works at our division four or five level? Mm -hmm. So coaches don't fail and we have to fail. So as a coach, if you look at my preseason schedule, I'm going to lose to Mitty by 30. I'm just going to do it. But I can try a 1-3-1 or I can Mm -hmm. try maybe a a matchup or a box and one or this new offense. So I really think that if we're asking our players in order to get better, you really have to get outside your box But as coaches, we stay in our box. We run the same stuff all the time. We only want to know what worked. We don't ever ask coaches that we look up to, hey, what didn't work? Mm -hmm. So I think those things and all the different things I've learned from coaching other sports, including golf. And golf and tennis are interesting because I tell my players, if you're a golfer or a tennis player, you know your stroke. You know what iron to hit. Mm -hmm. But as team players we always wait for the coach to tell us be CEO of your own game know why your shot isn't consistent know what a beautiful form looks like and that is what I found at more of the individual sports that the high school and college kids take more responsibility for their game than the team sport players who just look to you and say you fix it the hell's wrong with me yeah
0: that that is a really insightful. Share and as I'm processing it and I'm thinking about it, having coached golf for five years myself, and what my takeaway was how strategic you need to be to play the holes backwards from the pin Mm -hmm. to get yourself into the position where you're playing your best clubs and use. I'm not going to go out on the golf course and be like, all right, I can hit this Tiger Woods draw to the right place. No, I can only hit it straight with a little fade. So I better hit this shot. But on a basketball court, it's not like as a kid, I do it now as an adult, but as a kid, I can't make that shot. So let me just pass to the guy that can. And that's such a fascinating way to think about things and something I'm definitely going to steal and use when I am helping to define roles for the athletes that are on Our team. That's really good. Thank you for that. How has your coaching approach changed during your career? You mentioned up front that you've modified, you've matured in certain ways and that each team is different. You're doing different things, but how would you characterize it in a few sound bites as to here's where I started, here's where I am now, and here's why?
2: Yeah. And um, it's interesting, and I don't know if you're there yet, but the older you get, the more you'll enjoy practice and not enjoy games. I hate practice. I just want to get to the games because it was about you. You're young and you didn't care how you won, just so you won. And to me now, these kids at Menlo, it's like you're drawing or you're painting a, a beautiful portrait, right? And from Monday through Thursday, you're painting. And then on Friday, you have this art gallery that's gonna look at your portrait. And that's kind of how I look at the way I coach now. I need to get them prepared to be able to compete. Wins and loss, obviously we all wanna win, but it's more that are you in shape? Do you understand the opponent? Did you not waste time at practice? And are the kids having fun? I could care less if the kids had fun my first 20 years, right? Now it's about the bench guys having a nickname. They're the bench guys and they, or you look down and, and you're in charge of all out of bounds plays for Carmel and you're in charge of all the specials they do at a timeout for Sacred Heart Prep. And I think what I've done is had more fun with allowing assistants and players to be so much more involved, so all fourteen or fifteen of the kids feel like they're invested mm-hmm. in this game, and that's been probably since I've been at Menlo. That has really entered my coaching, and I couldn't be more happy. And I wish I had done it thirty years ago.
0: Yeah, no, your comment on practice and game dichotomy there—I'm with you. I, I feel like the games sometimes just get in the way of what we're trying to accomplish, and we're not quite ready to perform, but we have to go out there and fail and learn. And it's all good, but I just assume practice and and continue to move the needle towards helping all these kids become better teammates, become better leaders, become better at their craft. It's funny that that has happened. And I'll also share this, like some of the ways in which I've applied exactly what you said is there's times I don't even go into the huddle. It's like you guys handle it. And. I had my assistants making subs and, and things that as a young coach, we would never consider because we got to control everything. And, and as an older coach, it's no, okay, you handle that. Let me focus on this and, and we'll figure out our way. I'm curious what you think may have brought that on. And are there any particular failures since you brought that up that have really shaped who you've become on your coaching journey.
2: 100%. And, and like, I went back, I, I stand, Turlock and Stanislaw were wonderful to me, but I was a very good coach there. And I had different types of players. Matter of fact, my first year, basically Katz had two guys I really liked on Delta. And he says, if you want Joel Stallworth and Kevin Young, you're going to have to take four other guys. <laughs> so I literally had six guys in my measly little scholarships at Stanislaw that all came to Stanislaw and four played, two didn't, they all graduated. So it was such a unique situation there. So again, and I was talking to coach Williams and coach Montgomery about this. You coach differently when your family's livelihood is basically in charge of wins and losses. And I realized that just wasn't the type of coach I was. Yeah. Uh, I had to have that fun element and I couldn't go in the game saying, geez, if I lose this game at Humboldt, I may not have a job next year. And it's a different animal, the college games to the high school game. But when I went to Menlo and told Chris Weems and now Earl Coberline, who are dear friends of mine, that the big thing that I want out of you as my administrator, like you would be my boss as an AD, is make sure that there is a joy element in my coaching. And if you come down and watch a practice where maybe I'm a little grumpy, remind me of the joy that this game has brought you and make sure that you use it every day. So that's the big thing is when you get fired. and, And one of my mentors is Johnny Orr. And he told me when I was at Stanford, he goes, coach, he goes, there's only two types of coaches, those that have been fired and those that are gonna be fired. And I never got that. And then when they didn't renew my contract at Stanislaw, I realized that this sometimes is a profession Mm -hmm. and that part of the profession I didn't like. I want to get back to the joy of coaching and being around players that you really enjoy working with every day.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it takes those moments to realize what is most important for us. And initially you described that Stanislaw opportunity as the one job where you didn't see yourself there for a lifetime as it was more of a stepping stone. And I've always said this, which is sometimes our best decisions are made by other people. And in that situation, reevaluating what was important led you to where you are now. So there's always opportunity and failure. I had a gal on an episode earlier where she said something that I thought was a really good cliche, but I had never heard it in this way before, which was fail your way to success. And I think the more we can embrace that versus the need to be right and to be perfect and to have everything lined up, we probably will be more successful.
2: And how you deal with failure again, turn the page. It's a horse racing term. Mm -hmm. There's nine races in a day you win four and lose five. That is a huge day for anybody that understands that. So, that analogy of just turn the page, yeah. all right, new game, new practice, new shot, and understanding that going from good to great, mm-hmm. like we talk about the extra pass mm-hmm. or the guy that takes a charge but only has two points and one rebound but the charge wins the game. Mm-hmm. So all those things have to be emphasized as a coach and understand that having Seth Curry in our backyard, literally now he lives in Atherton, mm-hmm. is not a good thing. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. every kid just wants to jack it up and they don't wanna learn how to shoot properly, great technique, form, they just wanna shoot threes. It's really important for us to emphasize all those things about getting to that level and about failure is a good thing. And, it, and we don't want you to fail in the last game of the season, we want you to fail in the spring and summer and maybe at practice so that when you get to the game success Mm -hmm. will happen
0: yeah and I, i like that you brought up how you respond we actually talk a lot about mistake response and teaching ways in which to respond so that you can still be frustrated but you can find it as an encouragement to get to the next step so i think that's important something i've started doing And probably the last six, seven years, that gives us something to point to with our athletes specifically. I came across this question the other day, and it's really sat with me because I've been forced to analyze my own thinking. But what would you say you have most recently changed your mind on from a coaching standpoint? I used to be here. Now I'm here. And here's why. Well, Getting back to the response. So
2: when a kid makes a mistake, I'm, I'm all over him. Climo, how many times are we going to talk about entering the ball with the outside hand? All right. But then when they make a mistake and they get mad, I tell them body language. And they look at me and say, you got to practice what you preach. So I literally have a coach every practice who's in charge of me. And, and the sign could be a little scratch on the nose, a shake of the head, throw a water bottle at me. And it's amazing how I don't go home two nights a week going, my wife goes, how was practice? And I go, just seemed all I did is scream at him all day. I don't have those moments anymore because I put that in my uh, playbook, if you will. And having a guy like Chris Weems and Earl Coberline, who are my bosses mm-hmm. that played, At a super high level that kind of keep me accountable to that so those are the things that really have changed obviously dealing with officials is really important and you got to understand that these college officials they get 325 dollars plus expenses i don't mind screaming at them Mm -hmm. but the dentist or the plumber that come out here at 315 just to get a run in and i'm trying to quote rules that's wrong that is absolutely wrong and i've really also said to my assistants hey just pull my pants or do yeah. something, but really try to be that positive role model on the court that I'm asking the kids to be. So that's been the biggest change since I've come from the college level. 21 years at the college level it was a long time mm-hmm. to come back to the high school. And I think those two years at Pittman where I coached the girls, mm-hmm. that, re- I mean, girls were like, Both sides of me, there was no like me at the end. I was in the middle and they were hanging on me and sitting on me and we'd scoop down and okay, you five are in. And I realized that the success you can have can also be an incredible enjoyment of the game. And that really helped me. And that transitioned me from college to go to Menlo is the two years I coached the girls and I tell you, they played just as hard. We ran just as many good stuff. They got after it at practice. So that was an eye-opening experience.
0: Yeah, I think your referee analogy is very notable for most people getting into this when they're young. And the fact that you have now assigned somebody to police your behavior is great and it speaks to your emotional intelligence (laughs) and realizing what support you need. And I've found, especially as I age, I just try to have a a real authentic relationship with the referees. I know their names, I check in with them before the game, my players go up and talk to them and introduce themselves. And then if anything, it's just laughing at the absurdity of things that happen during the game versus yelling and expecting they're gonna change their mind. It's just whatever, hey, great call. Absolutely, good job. (laughs) (laughs)
2: the time. And and I'm not there yet. And and I think we have to do coaches. Our enthusiasm is the best part of what we do. We are enthusiastic people. There are some coaches that are very low key. That's okay there. But we still, if if we sit on the bench and cross our legs, when something bad happens, the kids are going to freak out just as much as they would as you yelling at them. They're like, Hey, what happened to you? You giving up on me? So it's that fine line of enthusiasm but keeping it positive. And right. though these last six years at Menlo have really shaped me, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. I don't think I'm ever going to win like a CCS coach man of the year award yet. The um, honor I, coach award that Coach
0: Philios gets to bestow.
2: That's right. Yeah. The positive well, coaching alliance still has not asked me to speak. Well, I'll give
0: you two things that have been really good for me, which you've already alluded to one. You got to walk the walk. So if you don't want your kids talking to the refs, you gotta walk the walk and the other thing the hack for talking to the refs i got from a guy named tyler coston who's uh part of the point guard college group and he said very simply this is all you need to do john what did you see there and you're asking they explain it to you and at least you understand their perspective then and it's not an argument from the get-go because think about it this way right how many of us as teachers want our students telling us what to do and why we were wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's really good, yeah. And a lot of times you can say, yeah, but what did you see there is perfect. Because I'll say, did you see it? I'm trying to coach these guys up, but can you help me there? And they think that you're coaching them, but I, I really like that. I'm gonna use that, thank you.
0: All right, last question. And you have a ton of experience and different stops and different ways to answer this. And what has been consistent in all of these conversations is nobody really wants to change their past and what they have done to become who they are. It's not what would you do differently, but it's more what advice would you give the young coach Larson in a way that would best position him to find success in whatever way we want to define that sooner on the journey. So that the bulk of the career is enjoying what you have found now.
2: I I think all the mistakes that I've made along the way have have come to this, Mm -hmm. but I I definitely, like I alluded earlier, is just understand that you're a teacher and coaching is teaching. Mm -hmm. And I used to tell every kid that came to, Menlo College or Stanislaw that if you don't get better every year, that's on me. Mm -hmm. And I think that understanding every kid, how many brothers and sisters they have, do they have both parents? Where do you live? Mm -hmm. Those things weren't important to me my first 15, 20 years, Mm -hmm. but they're incredibly important now is just understanding that this little human being that you're helping shape. And they sometimes put you on a higher pedestal than you deserve. That's a life that's important for you to make sure that you probably get as close as you can off the court that you are on the court. And this doesn't mean that you got to be their buddy, but just have genuine understanding of I care about you more as a human being than I do as a basketball player. And those are things that I did not do a very good job with at Stanislaw. The Stanford kids it was almost like they were coaching me. Those kids that are still some of my closest friends that I coach, the Brevin Knights, Andy Poppings, and the Bart Lammersons, and Chris Weems, and Arthur Lee. They're family men now, and they taught me how to get more acquainted with them off the court than just X's and O's. So it's that wholeness, that complete player that I, I need to work with. Those are the things that I wish I could have changed my first 20 years is get to know my player better. And then I'll be able to know him better as a player.
0: Yeah, I think that's golden and something that often early on our relationships are transactional because we're doing a job versus being in what Coach Katz described as a calling where we're here to nurture our students and our athletes and help them navigate life and it makes a whole lot more sense if you know things about these people and it's a shared experience like we got on this before we started recording and spent 20 minutes catching up and it's okay how do you build that into your relationship with your athletes and I think that's really good advice something that we often neglect and the more that we can invest in those kids the more they're going to grow, which is our goal, and and the better we have a chance to be as a team. So thanks for sharing that.
2: It's been a great ride. And I was talking to Coach Williams and Coach Montgomery, and they're asking because they're retired and they have these nice places. And they go, how long are you going to go? And I said, as long as I have the energy, and as long as Menlo or whoever still wants me, what else am I going to do? This is not work to me. Mm -hmm. And when my wife and I, we've been married 33 years, she owned a running store and I went to work as a coach. And the only thing we promised each other is that we're going to get up every day and love what we do. And it doesn't matter how much money we make. And as long as we're loving what we do coach, Mm -hmm. then I hope we can continue to do it for as
0: long as we can. Yep. Absolutely. And that's a great way to tackle life. I'm going to end with this because you brought it up and I meant to talk about it, but We carry more weight than we sometimes realize. And that became super eye-opening to me when I became the athletic director. And I would continue to have the same conversations with my colleagues who in theory, I was now the supervisor and a suggestion felt to them like a mandate. And I had to be really thoughtful about how I interacted and the things I was asking because it was no longer a request. And I think as coaches and teachers, and mentors we have that same responsibility to our kids and that we have to lead and we have to set the tone and be alert to the impact we have even though we may not realize it at the time
2: and as an athletic director at menlo college i, I was 80 percent of my time was spent on adults and and that's the part i didn't enjoy <laughs> the, the kids you don't expect as much because they're growing so mm-hmm. you you but it's sometimes when you're in that administrative role, you can get pulled away from why you got into this. And I'm in the kids' business, and I love
0: doing it. Great, great. I appreciate having you here. It's been fun. Looking forward to catching up on the other side of COVID here and having an opportunity to to maybe play some basketball. That'd be great. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate it.
1: This podcast was also brought to you by ttroops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to ttroops.com.
0: Hi, this is Natasha McHill, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element. That's L-M-N-T for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. Try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at drinkelement. That's dot com slash JustinClimo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up. Thanks for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.